Singer-songwriter John Lennon released a song that uh, many consider to be one of, the, one of the greatest songs ever written. It's uh, Rolling Stone magazine ranked at number three all time. In 1999, it was, uh, this song was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. It's the song Imagine. And many of us, even those who are not around when it was released, were familiar with that song, we've, we've heard it on the radio, we've heard it uh, uh, played, we uh, have it on our phones, we've heard it on movies and, and commercials, very, very popular song. And in that song are these lyrics. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. And then the chorus goes on and on and says, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be one. In this song, Lennon is making the argument that the world would be a great place if people just realized that this life is all there is and within live like it. He's, he truly believed that, that life could be enjoyed if people would realize that there is only the sky above and the dirt beneath. And many reason in this way today, don't they? There was a popular beer commercial in the late 70s, early 80s, Schlitz Beer, used to air these cheesy ads on TV and there are motto was you only go around once so go for the gusto in other words live it up this life is all there is so live it up in the here and now because tomorrow will die and be gone could die and be gone forever therefore eat drink and be merry well here's the problem with that mentality the problem is there isn't just the sky above us and the dirt beneath us. Another problem is we don't just go around once. We go around twice. And that, folks, changes everything. We have this life, then death, then judgment. We're told that from God's Word, and that should change everything. The life we have in Christ, believers, should change the way we live today. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are finishing up our Easter series this morning entitled Evidence and Importance, Paul's case for Easter. We learned last week, in addition to numerous issues that the Corinthians were having morally and relationally, they were also having doctrinal problems as well, which should not be a surprise to us. Normally, if you have issues morally, you have issues relationally, there's a deeper-seated doctrinal issue as well. And there certainly was at Corinth. There was a, a certain group of people in the church who because of the influence of the Greek pagans, they were questioning their future physical 
bodily resurrection, the future resurrection of God's people in a physical sense. Now, they believed Jesus had risen literally, physically from the dead, but they believed that that resurrection was unrelated to them. They believed that was a, a one and done, a one-time deal, a special occurrence. So Paul writes what he writes here to address this belief and show that they are way off spiritually, way off doctrinally. In verses 12 through 34, he explains how Christ's resurrection, though unique, is not a one-time occurrence, but is an event that is going to be duplicated in his followers. It's, it's an event that guarantees future occurrences. He explains to them that the resurrection of Christ guarantees that there will be a future resurrection of all believers. And in this passage, he is also going to call for his readers to understand the importance of both the past resurrection of Christ and the future resurrection of the godly in that future day. Because of the content in this passage, it's fitting that we land here on Easter Sunday. This is not a, a gospel book. This is an epistle, a letter, written to the church who is having problems. But the content here is fitting to discuss this morning. Last Sunday, we looked at the evidence in favor of Jesus' resurrection. Today, we're going to look at the importance of the resurrection first way Paul shows the importance of the resurrection is by showing his readers that without it, there is no hope. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. Look at verses 12 through 19. Paul is going to argue that if the resurrection did not occur, then what we are doing here, Sunday after Sunday, throughout the week in and week out, what we're doing here at the church throughout the week is, is pointless. It's a sham. And we're to be pitied if there was no resurrection. In verse 12, Paul sets this argument up by giving a summary statement of the major issue in the chapter. Look at it. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? This problem is being dealt with throughout this entire chapter. Christians in Corinth, they believed, they proclaimed that Christ had been raised, and with the same breath, there was, they were saying there is no resurrection of the godly, not in a literal and physical sense. Paul is saying, how can you say that? If you believe in one, why don't you believe in the other? So, so Paul leads with this to show his readers he doesn't agree with their doctrine here. And he moves into his argument in verses 13 through 19. And he does something very interesting here. In this passage, Paul shows several consequences that believers are faced with if the resurrection has not occurred. First, Paul begins by talking about our future resurrection. And he says this. Look at this next point up here. If there is no future resurrection then there is no past resurrection. Verse 13, Paul says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, 
then not even Christ has been raised. Then he says it again in verse 16, just in case you didn't get it, for emphasis. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Paul is saying, if you Corinthians follow your belief that there is no resurrection to its logical end, then you are left with the dead Messiah. Now, some of you might be wondering, why is one dependent upon the other? Well, Paul is going to answer this later in the passage, but I'll say this right now. We are told time and time again in the scriptures that we are in Christ by faith, okay? Which means we who are trusting in Christ have such a connection to him that what, what is true of him is true of us. For example, he is righteous. Therefore, we who are trusting in him alone for salvation are declared not guilty, but righteous in Christ. We have his righteousness given to us, imputed to us by faith. He is God's son. Therefore, we who are in him by faith have been adopted into the family of God. We are children of God. He was raised literally, physically, and bodily to live forevermore. Therefore, we who are in him by faith will be raised like he was to live in his presence with his people forever. You see the connection? That's why Paul says if we deny the resurrection of the godly, then we have to say that Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, we have a whole lot of problems. And Paul just lists them out here in the verses to follow. So the first point Paul makes is if there is no future resurrection, then there is no past resurrection. If there is no past resurrection, number one, our preaching is pointless. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. That means what I'm doing right now is of no value to anyone if Christ is still in a tomb somewhere in the Middle East. That's Paul's point. Paul's clear. If Jesus is not raised, there's no point in talking about him. Preaching about him is in vain if he's still in a tomb. Why? Because the Bible makes it clear that the gospel message is built on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you are missing any of those elements, you are left without good news. Therefore, preaching about it is in vain. It's an exercise in futility. Speaking of futility, point number two. Second point. There is no resurrection of Jesus. Our faith is futile. Look at the end of verse 14. Paul says, and your faith is in vain. Now, remember last week in the first part of chapter 15, verses 3 through 4, Paul gives us the gospel in a nutshell. He says Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. All of those elements, his, his life, his death, his resurrection are to be in play here if we're missing one we're without hope for example if Christ did not live for us then we are without Christ's righteousness 
We don't have his righteous life applied to us. If he didn't die, we do not have a sacrificial substitutionary death offered to us, and we are without forgiveness. If he was not raised, we're not justified, read Romans 4.25, and we do not have a resurrected life. We do not have resurrection power. We do not have a life that can raise us up to new spiritual life in him. If he has not been raised, we are left without a great and perfect high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. Our faith is in vain if Christ has not been raised. Third point Paul makes in this passage, if Jesus is not raised, then our testimony is untrue. Look at verse 15. Paul says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. I love Paul's wording. So wordy, isn't he? I love it. It's it's like me. Paul tells his readers, "If, if God did not raise Christ, and we said that he did, then we're saying that God did something that he didn't do. We're misrepresenting God and our testimony is untrue. Next consequence, verse 17, Paul says, if Christ is not raised, our sins are not forgiven. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now there's a comforting thought for an Easter Sunday. If Christ did not rise, we are without salvation. If Christ is dead, we have no perfect priest who lives to stand for us. We have no perfect representative who makes us righteous. If Christ stayed dead, death put the stinger in Christ rather than Christ putting the stinger in death. If he did not rise, we are still in our sins without a hope in the world. Christ is still dead. Followers of Christ are perishing. Verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. This point closely connected to the previous one. I believe they're to be understood together. Paul is saying, if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, awaiting condemnation, and your loved ones who have died before you are perishing. Are you beginning to feel the weight of this? You see why this is important? Final point in this section. It's found in verse 19. Paul says, and if Christ is not raised, believers are to be pitied. Verse 19, Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I've heard it said by some, even if Christianity is proven false, Even if Jesus did not rise from the dead, I would be so glad that I gave my life to it. I've lived a good moral life, a nice, helpful member of society. The Apostle Paul completely disagrees with you. He says, if this is untrue, if we are giving our lives for something that's a sham, we are to be pitied. If this life is all there is, then there is no hope. So why live like there is hope when there isn't hope? We should be pitied. 
Second main point. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. Without the resurrection, there is no victory. Boy, we've been singing about victory this morning, haven't we? But without the resurrection, there is none. In the previous eight verses, Paul has been extremely negative to show how dim our existence would be without the resurrection. Now in verse 20, he shifts from the negative to the positive. At the beginning of verse 20, Paul says, But in fact, amen, Christ has been raised from the dead. Here in verse 20, Paul does away with all those what-ifs from the previous passage, and he says very definitively, Christ has been raised. Then he adds the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul says Christ has been raised. Corinthians believed that. But he adds the phrase to help them with their unbelief, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's saying don't say Christ's resurrection has no impact. It has a huge impact on all of those who are in Christ Jesus by faith. Now let's talk about what he means here for a moment when he says the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In the Old Testament, it was required by the Jews that before the harvest could be made, before you could harvest your whole field and, and, and bring the crops in, you had to cut down the first fruits of the harvest and present them before the priests and offer it before the Lord as sacrifice to him. It was what was called the first fruits, the first crop, given right off the top, the cream of the crop, the first fruit, the first crops. And it was also, it was given in faith, looking forward to a harvest to come. So it was a, an act of faith. And Paul is, is using that idea as this illustration here. He's saying in a similar way, Christ, the first, the best, the cream of the crop was raised first. And his resurrection, get this, is a sign. It is a symbol of the, the coming resurrection. It's a guarantee of that coming resurrection of all believers on the last day. In verses 21 through 22, Paul says, For as by man came death. Now, who's he talking about here? Who's the one man who's... One act brought death to the whole human race. He's talking about Adam, right? You remember the story of Adam. God created Adam and Eve in his image to glorify him, to live for him. And they were tempted by Satan in the form of a serpent to do the one thing God told them not to do. And Eve looked at the fruit that she was tempted with and she said, I, I think I'll eat that fruit. God told her not to. She said, I think I will Adam said, you did it, I'm going to do it too. I'm summarizing here, okay, for time. They sinned against God. Sin entered into the world. Man fell, and the whole pile of us went with him. Adam was our spiritual father, our representative head, and, and he sinned, and we fell with him right out of favor with God. That's what Paul is saying here in the first part of this. But then look at verses 21 and 22. This is Paul's main point. By a man 
has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So here's the point Paul's making here. If one man can do one thing and cause death to pass on all men, then why can't another man do another thing and bring life to men? See, Adam stood in a very unique place in human history, but so did Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, by natural descent from Adam, we die. By spiritual descent from Christ, we live. We are naturally descended from Adam by birth, spiritually descended from Christ by faith. And where we land, whether we're, we're God's people or enemies set against him with his wrath set against us, that depends upon our link with one of these two men. All in Adam die. All in Christ live. If you're not in Christ by faith, you're in Adam by birth. You see? And again... Paul says all that to make the point that you can't say the resurrection of Christ doesn't have any effect on anybody. It absolutely does. It does. In verses 23 through 24, Paul goes on to give the, the order of events of how this is all going to go down and take place. He says, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, so he rose, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, the future resurrection of the godly, then comes the end. So here's the order. You got the resurrection of Christ. Then the godly will be raised. When? At his second coming. And then the end. And Paul just gives this order just to, to assure his readers once again that, that this is what is to come. This is a done deal. And in verse 24, he goes into further detail of, of what is to come in the end after the resurrection of the godly. Paul says, when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. These are some exciting verses right here that Paul gives us that tells of the coming victory that King Jesus is going to have over his enemies and, and the, the victory that, that we who are in him, who are trusting in him alone for salvation, are also going to have in him. Paul says he's going to destroy every authority and power. He will put all enemies under his feet. When a, a king conquered a neighboring kingdom, the defeated king would be brought forward and his head would be placed on the ground and that conquering king would just prop his foot up on top of his head like that. It was a sign of, of, of total and complete victory. There's coming a day when King Jesus is going to do that. To all his enemies, our resurrected king has rendered you defeated. Like we sang this morning. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to defeat every enemy in total victory. He is going to destroy the works of the devil. He is going to defeat all enemies of God. And he is going to deliver the kingdom over 
in the hands of the Father. Look at verse 26. This is key. Paul says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Believers, there is coming a day when not only will the devil and all his enemies and all God's enemies be destroyed, but there is coming a day when death itself, the great enemy, will be defeated as well. See, the resurrection is important because it gives victory in life by giving victory over death. At the resurrection, Christ removed death's sting. What Paul's going to talk about later in this chapter, death. Where is your sting? It's removed. There is coming a day in the future when we who are in Christ by faith, will be raised to live with him forever, and death will be no more. Jesus talked about this during his earthly ministry, did he not? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Amen. Great news. So the resurrection is essential. Without it, there'd be no hope. Without it there'd be no joy. Without it, there would be no victory. Without it, there'd be no purpose. We'd be aimless in life were it not for the resurrection. Paul makes two important points here. He basically says if there is no resurrection, we should avoid pain and we should pursue pleasure if there is no resurrection. There's no need for sacrifice if there is no resurrection. Look at verses 30 through 32. Paul says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain, humanly speaking? I fought with beasts at Ephesus. In these verses, Paul, Paul shows there is great risk involved in serving the Lord. He shows that there is danger, verse 30, opposition, verse 32, and death, verse 31. Paul says in verse 31, my, my life is on the line daily for the cause of Christ. So if Christ is not raised, it's all for naught. You're probably noticing I skipped verse 29, not for long, all right? We got to cover every verse in here, that's what we do. But it's a very difficult verse, so I wanted you to understand that, that context first before I make a stab at it, okay? One of the most challenging verses in Scripture. But I wanted you to see that Paul is making the point here. If there is no bodily resurrection, then we should not risk our lives for the cause of Christ. It is in this context that Paul says in verse 29, What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Or I like the translation, baptized in place of the dead. I believe what Paul is referring to here, and I'm not alone on this interpretation, okay? So I'm not on an island here, but there are other interpretations. We can disagree agreeably. We don't have to split ways over this, okay? But I believe that, that Paul is referring here in this verse to second-generation believers. They're being, being called out 
and saved and baptized and used by God and picking up the mantle where those who have died before them left off. And I believe Paul is, is making the point in this verse of Scripture that if Christ is not raised, that sacrifice is not of any worth either. What's the point of a new crop of believers replacing the old, trusting in Christ, being baptized and going out and serving Him and suffering and giving their lives for Him if there is no resurrection, what's the point of that? Paul says at the end of verse 32 that in addition to avoiding pain, one should also pursue pleasure if there is no resurrection. If this life is all that there is, then let's party. Let's eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we might die and be gone forever. If we only go around once or if we perish without a chance at redemption, let's go for the gusto now. Richard Pratt says this in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. Look at this quote. Paul made it plain that he would never have endured such a trial for merely human reasons without the goal of resurrection in mind. What, we, what would we have gained from that? Nothing. If it were true that the dead are not raised, then Paul would not have lived such a hard life. Instead, he would have subscribed to the philosophy, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul said that irresponsible, sensual revelry would be the only reasonable approach to life if there was no hope of resurrection. So if there is no resurrection, no need to make any sort of sacrifices in this life for the cause of Christ. Paul says if there is no resurrection, avoid pain altogether and pursue pleasure. But he couples what he says in verse 32 with what he says in verses 33 through 34. Look at it. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. And do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now you learn when you study the book of 1 Corinthians that the Christians at Corinth were a mess. They were, they were living like there was no resurrection. Living like there was no final judgment coming. They were keeping company with those who denied the, the, the resurrection of God's people. They were believing their, their lies. And as a result of this doctrinal error, they were having issues morally and relationally, which again is a good reminder to us of how important theology is. Theology is vital. What we believe about God, what we believe about man, what we believe about sin and salvation is vital because what we think influences the way, uh, what we believe, which influences what we say and do. Right thinking leads to right living. That's why it's so important that we study theology. Christians at Corinth were having issues morally because they had issues doctrinally. That's why Paul goes to great lengths in this chapter to reaffirm the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ and of the godly and why he calls for the Christians at Corinth here in these verses to not be deceived. Wake up 
Don't go on sinning. He's saying if you really believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then you should really believe in the future resurrection of the godly. And if you really believe in the future resurrection of the godly in the final judgment, then your life ought to be lived in a manner that shows that. Makes that belief obvious. Because Christ has been raised, because you will be raised, life has meaning, it has purpose, and our life that we live in this body is to be lived for God and for His glory. Folks, Christianity stands or falls on the issue of the resurrection. If the resurrection didn't happen, we are wasting our time here we are my preaching is a sham there's no no hope there's no victory there's no purpose in life if Christ didn't rise we ought to put those books away we ought to leave this place behind lock the doors and never return if there is no resurrection but if there is if Christ is raised then Christ, his gospel message, his word, is really all that matters. It was Adrian Rogers who once said this, if the tomb is occupied, then nothing really matters. But if it's vacant, if it's empty, then Christ is the only one who does. What say you? You believe it. Did he rise or didn't he? The Bible teaches that Jesus rose from the dead. Gives us evidence of his resurrection and explains to us the importance of it. And the question that you need to answer today is this. Do you believe it? Are you trusting in it and living your life Accordingly, Jesus lived, he died, he rose again so that we, through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ, could be made right with God, be forgiven of sin and restored to him, washed clean by his blood and raised to walk in newness of life in Christ. Have you forsaken your sin? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? If not, I invite you to this very morning. Let's pray.